Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your Prolific Writer Podcast host, Ryan Pelton, and I am so glad that you are here. However, you found us on the train, on the treadmill, on the interwebs through a friend. We are here. We are dedicated to the simple task of writing fast, writing often, and writing well. The new indie world of self-publishing and indie writing, the name of the game is to write fast and write often and write well. And so we interview some of the most prolific writers on the planet the last couple of weeks, I've I've interviewed a woman who has written over a hundred books, and I have multiple authors who write books at the clip of a novel a month. And that's not to discourage you, but to show you, inspire you, what is possible. And that's not to forsake quality. These are selling authors. These are prolific authors. And I'm really glad that you're here. And today is episode twenty nine which is actually a remarkable milestone, not because the prolific writer podcast is awesome. And thank you for all the thousands of downloads and the nice comments and, and finding that people are, are getting a lot out of the show. And that was the goal, uh, hopefully through the interviews and through my yammering and ch- chatting and whatever things I can add would be helpful. And so hopefully they have been helpful. Um, but this is a milestone because I have started a couple different podcasts. I'm just going to go on record here. And many people know there's so many podcasts out there that start and stop, start and stop. It's a lot of work. And, and this shows a lot of work, but what I found is the people I get to interview, um, figuring out how to produce a show and really getting that down. And it's not a, a big, huge time crunch, to be honest. 
and maybe the quality could be better. I don't know. You can tell me, but for, for what it is, um, this is the, the most episodes I've done of any podcast and getting past that 20 episode has really kind of broken through and really excited about the future, excited about what's going on. We've been doing this since December. And so if you haven't had a chance, we have almost 30 episodes. We have 29, uh, with this one. And so go back and check out some of these episodes. And, and what you're going to find is you're going to find people in every background, every part of the country, some other parts of the world, but everyone has a different process. Everybody has a different experience. So hopefully what you're hearing is, is while we'll give advice and while people give advice and how to write, be a prolific writer is that no one's advice is the same. And you're going to pick out something from every different person. And, and today is one of those interviewers, interviewees that um, Andrew Mackay is on the show from the UK had two UK guys, London, uh, back to back. That wasn't planned, but, uh, just the way it worked. And, and Andrew has a great story of being a teacher for many years, writing scripts for many years. Um, I think he still writes scripts and screenplays and taking the, the plunge, becoming a writer and just jumping, jumping in with both feet. And he writes satire, which apparently is a genre you shouldn't get into if you don't, if you want to sell books, but he's doing well and he's cranking out the books and he's writing good books. I've read uh, part of, of his first book and in, in a series that you'll hear about. And Andrew Mackay is just a, a, a great dude. And we had a great conversation and, and you're going to realize that this is another guy, just a, a different story, different background. His story is not your story, uh, but, but hopefully through hearing his willingness to jump in, um, hearing his process, which is actually a process I've never heard before, uh, thus far. Um, you can, you can take something from it. Has some, uh, cool stuff coming down the pike, uh, through the prolific writer, um, working with a, a friend of mine and, and we got some, some stuff going to be coming out and I'll, I'll let you know about that into the future. Um, but, I'm still cranking out the words, writing the books and things, and um, I'll share some more of that later, um, but I want to get right to the interview and hope you enjoy this interview with Andrew Mackay, our friend from London, and I'll talk to you on the flip side. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast. Today, I have Andrew Mackay on the line. And I'm realizing the last two episodes, we have two people from London. I don't know if that's just coincidence or what's going on, but how are you doing today, Andrew? Yeah, I'm good. Good. How are you? Very well. How are you, how are you doing as far as London and all the craziness going on there? Oh, dear. Uh, well, this week uh, has been well, in fact, this week and the the week before this one, um, the UK has had a massive heat wave. Mm. Uh, a quite unusual, actually. Um, normally, we have our summer is one day in late July, <laughs> and uh, it's usually a Sunday, and it's usually when we've gone down to the cinema or, or somewhere where we would ordinarily be, uh, you know, completely cold. Um, but global warming has conspired to um, punish us because of Donald Trump coming out of the Paris Agreement. So um, it is now melting. And I live <laughs> I live in Hampshire, which is about an hour away from London. And um, 
I live quite high up in a, in a block of flats and the, the heat is just insane. Mm. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's ironic actually because, the, you know, I've been, I've been writing a lot, churning out stuff, but when you're, you know, I don't know if you know this, but when you, you sit down and, and, and write, when it's intensely hot, I found that my sort of sleeves on my shirt are dripping wet. Mm. Like, you know, where your elbow creases and it's just, it's been a real trial this week to answer your question. So do you usually not in the UK in London, uh, do you even have air conditioning? Do you even know what that is? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, we've got, um, we, we saw the, uh, Nicholas Cage film about it uh, about 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> but we don't have, I mean, it, it, it depends where you, I mean, like if you go to Starbucks and, uh, you know, uh, shopping centers, they do now have aircon only recently. Um, okay. but, but people's houses and apartments tend not to have it. And if they do, it's one of those kind of tumble dryer kind of gathering condensation and massive, you know, pipes going out of the window that is letting heat in anyway. So sure. yeah, um, the underground doesn't have air conditioning Our overground trains do, but, uh, on the whole, we, we have yet to migrate over to it fully. Well, we're uh, glad you're doing okay despite the, the heat and um, uh, looking forward to having a little conversation. And um, Andrew and I are uh, part of the same writing group and got in touch with each other. And um, yeah, I wanted to hear hear a little bit of your story and, and you were eager to come on the show and uh, you've been cranking out the books and actually had a chance to start reading one of your, your books, The Teacher, um, mm-hmm. in, in your popular series, and uh, really, really enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm working through it, and uh, it's it's a satire. And so why don't we just start, just start there, is uh, kind of where that, that series began. It seems like that's kind of your um, emphasis right now is kind of the satire, satire story, satire novels. Talk a little bit about kind of your, your series that you're working on. Uh, with the... Um the series is called in their shoes and it um ever since i was a a young lad (laughs) um i've always been fascinated by comedy and um i was i've i've had up until you know now i've had two primary jobs in my life one is writing screenplays and doctoring screenplays um i've written over 20 feature length screenplays and worked on many many more uh so that was half my bread and butter and then um but that was quite volatile so i had to go into teaching uh and really those two careers were kind of playing to the ego inside of me because i'm a bit of a show-off uh when i'm around people and by far the best way to show off is, is to make people laugh so um the kind of the teaching aspect of it was was my sort of physical performance and and the writing of it was really uh, the writing the the screenplays was really my way of trying to put stories together so so fundamentally i've always been a storyteller ever since i was like eight years old or whatever um and um i up until summer of last year i was a teacher i was a teacher for 15 years and I think late 2015, maybe half a year before, you know, before the summer of last year when I quit, I suddenly just got very depressed and thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't repeat myself and be a teacher over and over again. It's not too bad when you're in your 20s and 30s and you're, you're not that far away from, from the kid's age. 
you know, and uh, with college, it's slightly different because you're, you're teaching adults. But I did college and high school. College, obviously, is kind of like university for you mm-hmm. guys over there. Um, it, it, to, to cut a long story short, um, earlier in 2016, I decided, right, I think I'm going to make a go of this <clears throat> publishing thing. So what I did was uh, I bought a load of books uh, about self-publishing and really researched it the last sort of half a year of my teaching. And I felt myself slowly drifting away from being a teacher and, and going into the writing kind of arena. And my original idea was to write a non-fiction uh, book called the Kamikaze Teacher's Handbook. Because for the last six months, I thought, right, well, I know I'm on my way out. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to cut every corner I can think of. Um, I'm going to get away with as much as I can get away with, you know, uh, because teaching is just a, a, it's an insanely tough, difficult, mm-hmm. maddening, frustrating, and uh, and thankless, in some ways, thankless job. So I spent the last sort of four or five months, not not nothing illegal, nothing like terrible or anything like that, but just reining it back and seeing what what the repercussions would be if i didn't go at full pelt and as it happens it's just like any job no one noticed um so my intention was to write a non-fiction book about how to survive as a teacher called the kamikaze teacher's handbook and um and and that was going to be a glorious twenty thousand word uh kind of chapter by chapter how to deal with students how to deal with marking how to deal with this and that and the other thing um primarily the the main chapter was about smoking um which may surprise you uh because really in in um if you're on a film set and you're making a documentary which i which i have done uh always carry a packet of cigarettes and a lighter with you and the reason for this is because if one of the stars wants a cigarette you can go over there and rescue them and then they're in your kind of pocket and you know you can start talking to them and stuff and they keep coming back to you and it's a small price to pay in teaching smoking is where you get the truth so all the smokers huddle together and they pass all the gossip and so on and so on so in the, in the halls of the in the corridors of of the the school um a certain amount of truth is being told but is all dressed up uh but in the kind of sanctuary of the uh you know forestry behind the school where the perpetual smoker hangs out that's where they get the truth so that was another chapter in the book so it was a very kind of um bawdy kind of idea uh designed for people really that were either fed up with the with the game or saw the humor in it or were just getting into it and as time went on and I was researching self-publishing, what became really clear to me uh, quite quickly was that anyone that was having any degree of success uh, in self-publishing had a series. Hmm. And I was like, oh, God, really? I've only got one book in my head and, I'm about, and I've just quit teaching. I've got one book in my head. So... I was having a coffee one day smoking and suddenly I just had the idea of, no, I can still write this, but I can make a fictionalized version of it. And that really the, the nonfiction uh, part of, of, of uh, wanting to write a kamikaze teacher's handbook uh, gave birth to uh, the series lead character, Joy Atwood. Because I thought, well, if she's going to spend time with a teacher, I need someone that doesn't know anything. And it's actually pretty um, naive uh, but still eager. So that gave me my lead character. And, you know, the lead character of Joy Atwood, she's a sweet girl. You know, you, you like her and, and all that kind of thing. She's not particularly good at her job, but 
you know she's brand new to the documentary kind of thing and then she follows rachel weir the teacher so actually i was writing the kamikaze teacher's handbook uh but vicariously through rachel who's really me but quizzing myself from the outside looking in as joy and before long uh, i think 10 yeah i think it took me 10 days to write the teacher the first draft um and um and then i had book one and the intention was to go right well what else do i know right well i can write about an actor because i know the film world pretty well um a lot of my friends are actors so i talked to them about it and then book two was the actor and then and so now we're six books and two box sets into that series yeah, I, I've been uh, been fascinated by your story. I didn't realize that you'd only been writing for a little over a year, and um, since actually the, less less than a year. Yeah, I was going to say first book was published on October the tenth last year. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk about that. So let's let's throw it in reverse a little bit and we'll talk a little bit about the screenwriting. So how how did you kind of get into the screenwriting world? Because that's obviously not something you just say. Oh, today I'm going to be a screenwriter. Um, and obviously, it sounds like that's helped you write fiction um, because it sounds like screenwriters tend to be decent um, fiction writers that can write fast, um, know how to write, you know, keep things tight, those yeah. kinds of things. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. What's your influences uh, for film and in writing and screenwriting? Where, where did that come from? Um, well, when I was, uh, I think, yeah, I was, I was nine years old. Uh, my uh, <clears throat> half my family is French, so I always living in London as I did back then as a child. I had a lot of French cousins come over wanting to learn English, uh, and um, the reason I'm telling you this is because my um, one of my cousins uh, rented out on videotape a film called The Fly, the Jeff Goldblum film, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. from and. From the uh, 1986, David Cronenberg. And um, I watched that and I was completely uh, traumatized by it. Completely. <laughs> it was a life-changing event. If it hadn't have been for that, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't be the film and, and fiction nutter that I am. Anyway, after that, all I wanted to do was make people sick. So I'd hide spiders in the fridge. Um, I would doodle all sorts of things in English. I'd write stories. A, a wonderful thing happened in high school. Someone, um, the, the teacher, gave us half of a story he'd written, and the homework was to finish the story. Um, and other kids wrote, you know, uh, oh, he slayed the dragon, went back home, had tea, and went to bed. And me, when I went home, I made a meal out of it. I finished an entire textbook in pen. And I went into really graphic detail, and it was I think that was the second thing that happened where I had validation from my teacher at me and eleven years old for finishing that story um, and so after that, I became fascinated by uh, films and then studying how you know how they were put together and I, I think as as a result of trying to dampen the trauma actually because if you get the great unknown um is always the thing that, that that you fear the most. I mean, take Jaws, for example. You never see the shark uh, until the end of the film, or the Babadook more recently. You never see the bad guy until the very end, and there's always that sense of not knowing you know, anything about it, which really gets you anxious. So using, you know, if we, if we subscribe to that basic precept, y- trying to understand how film works was really my unfastening of the trauma. 
cut a long story short, I wasn't interested in anything else other than writing English and, and film. Uh, and I ended up in film school, ended up getting a degree in film and in writing. And um, my influences very quickly became Larry Cohen from uh, 70s and 80s black, black well exploitation pictures, but also black exploitation. He went on to do some um, pretty ropey B movies. Uh, William Goldman, who wrote The Princess Bride, uh, Stephen King. There are so many different influences that I had in terms of writing. David Mamet, uh, I guess, would be another one. Um, and so, and it's interesting you said that, oh, you don't just suddenly decide one day you're a screenwriter because actually that's how it happened. I was like, right, well, I want to write screenplays. I, I'm, I'm dumb and stupid enough to want to sit down and write a 120-page screenplay. I think I've got a great idea. I'm going to sit down and write it. Write it. So I wrote it in Word and I completely screwed it up it was it was dreadful it was absolutely dreadful but at the time 19 year old andrew thinks this is the best thing ever so um i nevertheless you know i wrote it in word the formatting was all wrong but i still had a screenplay and i showed it around to all my friends and they all said it was brilliant and they were all lying because it was terrible it was absolutely terrible i couldn't even read it back very quickly i got a copy of uh, final draft the software for well the industry standards software mm-hmm. uh, for writing screenplays and i started writing that and started reading well i'd always been reading screenplays but i actually copied you know scenes and sections just to get an idea of the rhythm and very quickly i was churning out screenplays and eventually uh, we'd go out and film them um and then it's just like the self-publishing game, really. If you think about it, you know, you write en- enough, spread yourself around enough, someone's going to notice at some point. And if the planets align properly, then um, then you're okay. So you, the French cousins come over, and you <laughs> wa- you watch the fly, and determine that I need want to gross people out. I want to tell stories. Um, go to film school, uh, mm-hmm. and. When did the shift to – because a lot of what you write obviously is satire, humorous. Um, you, you sound like you have a good sense of humor. You've been you – know, I was looking at some of your influences, you know, John Cleese and um, yep. you know, some of these great comedians, Douglas Adams, you know, writing funny sci-fi. Um, yep. So when did that shift happen? I mean obviously you're not writing horror. You're not writing, you know, suspense. But, but right now, why, why satire? Um, I think satire is um... – about as it's a, it's an interesting one because my my real influences growing up when I was much much younger was things like Forty Towers, Monty Python, Blackadder, uh, Brass Eye, Day to Day. I mean, I could row off a list: The Office, Father Ted, Young Ones. You know, I mean, a lot of UK. Uh, British humor, obviously, because I mean, back then there was no internet, so we didn't really, you know, in the 80s get a lot of US stuff, not really. Uh, but we would eventually, things like Seinfeld, then Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I've always been fascinated by comedy. I've never done stand up, I've never really implicitly written a comedy until I started my series, but I think it's, it's, it's kind of a challenge. I mean, I, I like making people laugh. And and I think the reason for that, again, is to feed into the ego, because if you've written a horror, either a book or, a, or, a, or in particular a film, um, and people are watching it, then their silence and gasps and, you know, nervous laughter indicate to you as a filmmaker that you've done the job correctly. Well, of all the genres of film, 
there's no better indication that you've done a good job than when people are laughing. Mm -hmm. And so if you transpose that to books, then, then hopefully, you know, you've done it right. And so coming back to my original point is, is that I've always deep down inside, I think a lot of people are quite angry about the state of things today, the inequality and the just, you know, blindsided unfairness of society. You know, there's always there's the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, you know, people getting away with murder, uh, people getting done for murder when they didn't do it. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's a massive divide. And um, and I think most people, if they if they search deep enough, they will probably feel angry about that. And satire really extrapolates that. It really gets to the core of issues. Um, because, you know, in fiction, the number one thing that you must have without doubt is conflict. So if you have, you know, an actor at odds with his job or a model that is on her last, you know, in her last year of modeling to provide for her son, like in book three, then you already have that conflict inbuilt. And satire talks about society and you can get away with a lot more writing satire because you can just go no i was being satirical but actually <laughs> um but actually you know some of it i do believe in some of it i don't and that to me is very interesting um i'm i'm personally not and this applies to films and, and and entertainment i choose to consume but i'm not especially you know in love with goblins and fairy tales and and you know wizards and spaceships and stuff like that it's not really my thing my thing is more kind of uh, you know real life and making a comment on that uh, which i hope my series uh, has been doing mm-hmm. no i think you you're doing a great job and and i've had a couple uh satirical writers on and we, we've talked a lot I'm, I'm really fascinated too with comedy and, and why does you know when comedy works when it doesn't work um, but but you, you mentioned something interesting about you know comedy or satire allows you to really say truthful things or to um, you know a lot of stand up comedians really have a have a pulse on what's going on in the world but we're able to kind of laugh at how sad it is but also get truth across and I think you know humor can disarm you know, serious things, and but also kind of through the back door, bring in some truth and to, to help people kind of think about what's really going on. Um, you know, I hear you saying, you know, as a teacher, you, it was a difficult job. And, you know, I think teachers should be paid more than they do because it's, it's, it's a job that never ends. It's, you know, you're, you're, it's grueling. You know, you come home, you do more work. It's, you know, you deal with kids, you're babysitting kids all day. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, writing a book about the life of a teacher, you know, you sound like you're saying, you know, with your nonfiction to a fiction um, is really a creative, I think, way to kind of get that message message across. I think so. And I think it also bought me a bit of license as well, mm-hmm. uh, because if I'd have gone ahead with the, the nonfiction thing, then that is because I, I spent a good few weeks thinking, God, should I, should I write this nonfiction book under my real name? Mm-hmm. You know, what if this doesn't work out? <laughs> I have to go back. I'm not going back. I'd sooner fucking die to be honest i'm sorry i swore uh but anyway um yeah i th- there was that consideration i thought well no if I, I as i say if i write vicariously through a character then it becomes fiction but i can still input a lot of uh you know um how i felt in there and and put that as fiction and i think also by virtue it would read real 
you know it, it would it would have some sort of authenticity in it uh, and what i ended up doing with with book one and the teacher is that it's so authentic i mean everything that you read in there did happen one way or another and uh, there's one there's one moment in the book i think it's chapter five where uh Joy and Rachel are on call. She's got the uh, radio and they just have to run around the school sorting stuff out for an hour or so. And um, they end up in a very nasty situation um, in the girl's toilet. I won't go into it, but it it does deal with, with a, a particularly nasty thing. And the number one comment I've had is, uh, oh, the, it, it, yeah, the book was great, but that oh, that bit in you know where they have to go on call to the toilet are you, are you sure about that and i said actually i toned that down mm. um it was a lot worse and the reason i turned it down uh, sorry toned it down was because i didn't think anyone would believe it mm-hmm. and in toning it down they still don't believe it um so you know the names were changed to protect the innocent mm-hmm. um but what i found with the teacher was that because the teacher was so authentic I was setting myself up for, I don't want to say a failure, because that's not true. I was setting myself up for a major challenge as the books progressed. Because, for example, book five is the nurse. And I, you know, I've never been a nurse. I haven't, thankfully, so far, touch wood, spent much time in a ER room or, or a hospital. I don't really know. I mean, I, I've got a fair idea of what's going on. I know there's nurses pushing trolleys around and stuff, but I, I don't know any of the technical terms or whatever. So I ended up having to interview and meet a lot of nurses and find out what was going on there to try and replicate the authenticity of a nurse in the same way I did as a teacher. But obviously, I was a teacher for 15 years, so I just jumped head, you know, head first into it. So really, the authenticity then became... A, you know a factor where i'd have to do a lot of research in order to keep that going so really what i've got on my hands now is six books into a series which is on hold for the moment um is when i go back to it i've now got to research thoroughly everything to make sure it's at least passable in terms of its veracity yeah and you know it's funny with with comedy and satire too it, it's I think when people think of that, they think of, you know, just jokes and, you know, knock, knock jokes and what have you. But, but I think what I see kind of in your book and another uh, woman I read that's pretty, pretty good that um, came on the show. She, you know, it's, it's, it's the silliness of the character. It's how they kind of stumble around, how they're clueless, how they're, you know, I think when I think of like the comedies I love, you know, they're, you know, the office and things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of exaggerated life, but at the same time you can go, Hey, I know a guy just like that. You know, I know a guy in a cubicle that was, had a personality just like that, even though it's exaggerated, even though, you know, but, but also the, just the kind of nonsense that you see that you probably saw in the classroom, you saw in the school that people probably wouldn't believe believe half the stuff that actually does happen and it makes for for good books (laughs) yeah it was quite i mean the teacher really was my i I guess final shrugging off of the the career so it was kind of like a a final curtain call you know it's like right i write that get that out of my system right i'm done with that now i can move on and um one of the one of the most therapeutic bits was when because um, in in um, in their shoes, Joy has to undertake that profession for a part of the day, usually for like an hour or half an hour. So in the teacher, she has to be a teacher for a bit of it, and she ends up teaching um, Rachel's class. And um, 
as I was, this is interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about this, but as I'm writing, I'm, I'm kind of, kind of watching the movie and describing it as I'm typing, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And as I was writing that, I mean, I didn't know how that chapter was going to, how that class was going to end. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but the way it just it just goes left and right, and there's no rhyme or reason to it, is exactly how classes go, particularly if you're um, brand new to it, and pre- more particularly if you haven't if you haven't prepared, because you do you know you'll be on track and it'll be going well for five minutes, and then someone will ask you who your favourite football star is and then that'll totally throw you off and then the conversation veers into one way or another and that that was kind of that was interesting for me because trying to really in my own mind trying to relive some of my you know more troublesome classes was just veering off into all sorts of different ways and that is very much the uh, kind of juvenile mentality i mean it's not their fault they're kids i mean what, what are you going to do but but you know that it does veer off and it does go and it and that was really I guess with a teacher, I really wanted to give everyone a fl- anyone everyone that's reading it a flavour of what it was like to be a teacher, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, through great tragedy and through some of the most mundane things in life can be hilarious, you know. I mean, you take you look at um, there's a character in the teacher called um, Mr. Bland. Which is <laughs> straight out of the Dickens naming characters kind of you know rule book, but um, but he is boring. Oh my God, he's boring. You know, he's the Milton from Office Space of, of the book. You know, and and just the little ticks and the little you know um, kind of idiosyncrasies that the guy has, and everyone just calling him boring. And and again, a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the the notes I've had back from from readers will be you have got that guy spot on. I know someone like him, just just like him, at work. I can't I can't claim to be breaking any new ground in doing that. I mean, it's been going on for years, like Office Space and like The Office and anything else with office in the title probably but <laughs> but nevertheless if it's nevertheless if, it, if it's done well and it's um you know uh, and treated seriously and, and um thought through well enough then it can be funny all over again well i'm uh i'm only a couple chapters into the teacher uh but one thing i notice and, and, and again this probably gets into a little what you're talking about kind of craft stuff but um it, you know it's very visual um and but what I like about your storytelling is that you, you're not overly descriptive, um, no. but yet there's a scene where there, you know, she walks into a, um, you know, this won't give anything away, but you know, walks into the, the teacher's lounge or the teacher's, you know, whatever. And you're just kind of describing what you see and you know, there's all these computers and there's, you know, but they're old and all that. Um, you, I, I like the way you, you tell that, that story, you tell that, give those details, but you don't spend, you know, five pages describing the computer, describing the, you know, wall color, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, from your, your screenwriting background and kind of the visual storytelling, has that kind of helped you with, with telling, uh, fiction stories, or I should say, you know, in word, in the word format? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the main difference between, writing a screenplay and writing a book is that the book does need a bit of description. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, uh, that's not to say the screenplay doesn't, but the screenplay, you are li- literally, I hate that word, but you are literally writing what appears on the screen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if Bob is holding a machine gun behind the wall uh, and the audience can't see it, you don't write it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, Gary is walking 
down the corridor and Bob's hiding behind, unless there's a cut to Bob with a machine gun behind the wall. Um, if it doesn't appear on screen, it doesn't go on the page. Um, so really, I mean, your average screenplay is about 20, 25,000 words, somewhere in that area. Now, if you apply that to a book, obviously that's a short story or, you know, a novella, you know, if you really want to stretch it. Um, so, you know, my writing has always been fairly lean anyway. And when I wrote the teacher, I did, I wasn't, I wasn't innocent. I did over describe some stuff, uh, but my, that's what an editor is for. So, um, he goes, no, I don't need to know that. Get rid of it. Okay. Don't need to know that. I don't ask boring. Get rid of it. No, that's not funny. Can you make it funny? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try. Okay, but if I don't laugh, it's going. And I was like, good. Um, so, you know, um, I I personally don't want to write a description any more than readers want to read it, to be honest. What's the point? I end up boring myself just writing about it. Um, and I found six books in. I'm now halfway through my seventh, which is something completely different. It's not in their shoes, but the um, but I, I've just read some of it back, and and it's actually very very description less. Um, and it's it's just getting on with it, movement, movement, movement. Um, and when I come to self edit and, and and go through it before I send it off for the first past edit. Um, I'm going to take out all the rubbish bits, and and that's really my process. And in, in, in you know on that score, so sc- writing a screenplay um, has really helped when I've migrated to uh, books. And um, really, I mean, uh, for me, I write books like they're movies. Mm-hmm. You know, like where the breaks are, where the chapters finish. Usually, on I mean, it's not always a literal cliffhanger it just might be you know the the end of chapter five for example is oh my god i'm about to teach my first class the school buzzer goes off the end you know that's the end of the chapter so you know when you dive into the next one joy's going to start teaching a class so you know everything's relative um but yeah i try and move it along as quick as i can and just try make it be an experience where someone's reading it and they are literally picturing the the IMAX screen in front of them. And I think if that's your starting point and your overall remit, I think your writing will follow on naturally to conform to that. And it's your best shot of writing something, something compelling. So I'm not uh, that familiar with screenwriting and um, I I know there's different ways of, of doing it. Um, but you know, as you talk about the transition from screenwriting to novel writing, um, you know, do you come to a screen screenplay with an outline, and then do you come with to a novel with an outline? How how is that kind of transition of like when you sat down, and you said, okay, I got this story. I think it's a nonfiction story about a teacher. You know, what it's like to be a teacher. No, no, I think it's a fiction story about a teacher. Kind of where did you begin with that first book? What was kind of the process there? Or did you just go for it? Um, well, I, I wanted to. Um... I had, <clears throat> I didn't, I knew, this is, what I'm about to say is actually true of, of everything I've written so far. I know how it starts. I know basically what's happening in the middle and I know how it ends. Um, some books I've known it intricately, like like the last book I wrote, book six, The Dealer. I knew it very well from beginning to end. It was a very complex story. So, I mean, there, there's obviously the difference between an outliner and a panster. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I fall somewhere right in the middle. Um, I would never embark. I'd never, I'd never climb aboard a bus where I didn't know where the destination was. I mean, that's just silly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, mean, I, I like the experimentation part of that. that that's fine. So really, I mean, I mean <clears throat> as, as long as you've got a, <clears throat> a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, and, uh, as long as you know where your destination is, I think you're fit to write. And I do outline. Sometimes I write it down, but more often than not, I don't. Uh, because when I come up with an idea for something, I never write it down, ever. I would say on every... Every single day, Monday to Sunday, no day excluded, every day of my life, I have four ideas or five ideas for a story. And most of them don't survive. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. in fact, I could go two weeks and one of them wouldn't stick. But one day, one day, one of those ideas will stick. And my process is I deliberately don't write it down. So in a week's time, if it's still in my head, it's mm-hmm. earned its space in my brain. And I still don't write it down. And I, like right now, I've got maybe 17 different ideas jostling for position. I mean, they, they kind of carousel around. Um, I know what I'm writing after this one that I'm writing now. Uh, because, quite frankly, it's one, it, it's, it's, it's earned its space in my brain, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm writing this book right now. I'll finish that and then I'll move on to the next one. And you know what? I think, you know, um, I think my next thing will be a trilogy. But you know what? When I finish this, and if it's not, and I've got something better, I'll write that instead. So that's really, in terms of ideas, that's how it works. In terms of outlining with the teacher, um, again, I, I, I love the opening of the teacher. I thought, what is the last thing anyone would expect a teacher to do? Right at the beginning. What is the number one thing that they don't expect? Quite simply, it's a teacher who's hungover, probably still a bit drunk, rolling into a car park, trying to get out of a car and throwing up in a bush. <laughs> that that you've sold me. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm consult, as far as I'm concerned, if you understand and appreciate humour, yeah. you know, and she's meant to be followed for the day, and she's totally forgotten she's part of a documentary, and she's been sick, mm-hmm. and she swears. And that's the last thing you're expecting. And from that point on, I don't know about you, but I'm hooked. I want to know more about her. why is she like this? What kind of day is she going to have? And just upping the ante. Most teachers' days are pretty boring and they're on autopilot, if I'm being honest, especially when it's hot. Um, <laughs> but, but this day that Joy is following Rachel, she's got a, an observation. Her career depends on that observation. She's hung over. Uh, she's, she is probably a bit drunk. She's had no sleep. She's very irritable. Straight away, you've got a com- you've got comedy gold lined up. And so, so if we go to, let's say, a few hours before I start to write back in October, I know I've got that to play with. <clears throat> I know that she's got an observation that day. Any opportunity she's got, she's going to run out into the forest and have a cigarette. Every single opportunity. Um, she also needs her coffee. And I thought, well, the worst thing I can do to that poor teacher is every time she gets near it, she gets torn away from it for some reason. Um, any kind of respite, she is denied. And what I need to do <clears throat> is have life conspire to break her down hour by hour. Um and enjoy just to witness it all and and be flummoxed and shocked because joy is essentially the reader um you know you're seeing it through joy's point of view um and i knew how it was going to end i'm not going to spoil it for anyone but um but it ends the way it ends so 
so that's all I knew. I re- I knew the beginning. I knew Rachel needed to be broken down, and she was already annoyed at the beginning uh, and disadvantaged. Joy, on the other hand, there needed to be between Joy, the documentarian, the series lead, and the and the teacher, there needed to be a shift. So Joy starts on the front foot, being the documentarian, and Rachel starts on the back foot, and that shift had to move. Uh, in an opposite direction by the time we got to the end of the story, which happened. So really, I was using that as my starting point. point. I knew I had to get to the end where a specific thing happened. And as I was writing, that was just in the back of my brain. Every single paragraph, what can I be doing to switch, um, you know, uh, to grind Rachel down and beef joy up and, and keep that tension going um there's a wonderful in fact i i don't know how anyone can exist without it and once they read it or listen to it um then i think it may change their game quite considerably it's robert mckee's story mm-hmm. um great book and it, it it's a fantastic book and and i don't agree with every single bit of it but i do agree with most of it and if you start a chapter or for a film uh, a scene you know, and you've got say, I don't know, Tim and Sandra. If Tim Tim starts that scene confident and Sandra starts it anxious, then by the end of that chapter or that scene, Tim needs to be a little different or completely different from uh, confidence. Like something happens and his confidence is knocked, and now he's upset, and she needs to start anxious and then end up being I don't know, confident. Because what you've got there is a, a mini journey, and it can be just something that Sandra said to Tim that makes that shift, you know, occur. And then once you build up all those shifts, you end up with an arc from beginning to end. So, and I've read a number of, of books where that doesn't happen, and I have to say it it it, it doesn't work so well mm-hmm. for me. Well, you know, when you start the book with, you know, this teacher that's drunk and hungover, I mean, there's also that other, you know, sets up for comedy, but it also, in, as a reader, like for me, when I'm reading, I'm, I'm going, okay, what, what happened to her? You know, what, <laughs> what led her to show up to school hungover? You know, what, what problem does she have? You know, she's <laughs> forgetting all her commitments, you know, all these things. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways, you know, we, we all can, can relate to that in some ways. We all go through pain. We all go through struggle. But, you know, then you bring it out in a, in a humorous way. And, um, and and also I just wanted to just hit, too, what you said about ideas um, is, you know, Stephen King talks about that. And he says, you know, notebooks full of ideas, you know, th- those are where the ideas go to die. You know, and, yeah. he, and he always says that. He says, you know, the good ideas I've had are just ones that have stuck stuck around, you know, yeah, yeah. ones that are there a week you know, two weeks. I mean, he talks about 30 years later having an idea, you know, the dome that he started 30 years ago and didn't finish it, you know, because he just said I wasn't ready for it. But he he said, I went right back to that first page or that first chapter and I almost wrote the same chapter verbatim because that was an idea that just really resonated with me and stuck with me. Um, and I think that's important because in a lot of writers, you know, starting writers, they, they just, you know, you know, what idea do I have? Am I going to run out of ideas? Where do I find ideas? And then you realize they're, they're kind of everywhere. And the good ones just, they do, they just kind of haunt you. They linger, <laughs> they, they, they won't let you down. They won't let you go. And then you're just like, okay, I think that's it. And then, you know, you just go with it and see where it goes. But um, yeah, I don't think yeah, I agree. Yeah. ever run I, out of ideas. No, I, I I know for a fact that that I am 
my brain just comes up with ideas or, or it's in receipt of ideas. I don't know if my brain actually comes up with the idea, but, but um, you know, the, it, it can come out of anywhere. Um, the, the book I'm writing now, I don't know if you want to talk about that later, but uh, but that came out of a concept. I was, I was just, you know, I was just walking down the road. I don't know where it came from, but a, but a line just came into my head and I thought, that's interesting. That's very interesting, and and I don't know where it came from. Did I look? Did I look at the side of a bus that was advertising something that had one word in that line? I don't know. Um, you know, John Cleese has a wonderful description of of how people get ideas. Uh, he says that when people ask him where he gets his ideas from, he says, um, "Oh, he gets them from a guy called Roger in the sl- southeast of England, who's eighty two years old." And um, uh, John Cleese once asked Roger where he gets his ideas from, and he says, "I have absolutely no idea." Okay. So, and I think, uh, I mean, that's verbatim. Obviously, mm-hmm. John Cleese tells it a lot better than I do, but sure. but it's um, you know, but it but it is true. It could be a piece of music. Um, you know, I, I was listening to Battle Royale by Apache um, a few months ago, um, and uh, I got the idea for the dealer from just that one track. Uh, and and the reason for that is because it's kind of you know it's very bombastic. It's a sort of film, it's sort of music you'd see in a movie trailer probably. And I just I, just, I don't know why I just had a vision of Joy Atwood on top of a truck jumping from one to another and swinging around and this guy with a machine gun firing and you know um, drugs flying everywhere and and uh, her walking with blue hair. I mean just cut 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 like a movie trailer. And all these different images, and I have no idea how this all pieces together, but every time I was listening to that track, I was thinking, that's an interesting image, that's an interesting idea, and I just threw it into a pot and hit frappe Mm -hmm. in the blender, and then I ended up with book six, The Dealer. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, uh, you know, uh, which I think is uh, obviously the best of the six, Mm -hmm. what I'd like to think so. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's the joy of, of writing too. I mean, I, I'm a little more of a, a pantser, but I think I have ideas, and I have kind of I think I know where it's going. You know, if I don't write it all down, but there's yeah, there's just these images or scenes that that just stick with you, and I think are so fun. Like I, I had one with a, <laughs> I'm working on a book, and the opening scene is just this, uh, the the main character's in a sushi place, and he, he's just totally out of fish out of water. Never been to a sushi place. He's from a small town. He's in this big city. And I just kept seeing this kid with a man bun and just giving him a hard time and like rolling his eyes and just like, can you hurry up? I, you know, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're ordering? You know, and that's all I had. It was just, a, just a, a guy in a sushi place and they're having this funny back and forth, you know, and it's like, okay, that's, that's a good start, you know? And, yeah. and, and yeah, it's just, it's, I think that's the, the fun part of, of, you know, I think also trusting your, you know, people talk about trusting your subconscious. I mean, there's, there's just this creative part of people that it's just there. And as you write, you don't know where it comes from all the time, but you just have to trust it. I, you know, trust is a, is a very good word because, um, or, or, I, I would say without fail to, to, to varying degrees in each of the six books I've written and including the seventh one I'm writing now, um, you know, I know my beginning, middle, and end, and it's usually, you know, you know where that famous bit that that came into your head will go. It might be at the beginning, it might be in the middle. It's something that you can start with or work towards, which I think helps. Um, but 
I, I there's there's at least forty percent at least forty percent of pantsing going on with me, and <clears throat> this is an, uh, jumping from the outline camp into the pantsing camp. I actually think the pantsing camp is uh, not to be underestimated, because if you're writing as I do, you know, uh, as fast as you're kind of watching the the film, if you like, in your own head, then. Like, for example, in book four, won't spoil your entertainment to know that the artist that Joy follows, um, she goes into his mansion. He's a millionaire, a young millionaire. And I was writing it and, uh, you know, they're having a conversation. They're on Skype with all their friends and, you know, they're putting something together. And I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, and I'm enjoying what I'm writing because I'm basically reading a book as it's being written. You know, and and then and I keep on writing and, and Jake and Joy walk out of the mansion. He picks up a gasoline tank and sloshes gas all over the place. And I'm like, what are you doing? And, and my fingers are dancing on the keyboard. And so I'm like, what are you doing? And, he, and then the, the butler comes in and says, Jake, your, oh, sir, your uh, car's ready outside. And then he pays him off and torches his own estate and gets in the car and it blows up of the, as they drive off. And that's the end of the chapter. And I stood up and I thought, how did that happen? What? I'll tell you what, Jake has some explaining to do right. in this book. I have no idea why he did that. Right. All I know is it makes for complaining reading in that chapter. Mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew how the story ended and I trusted my instincts enough to know I could work. However, why, why he did that into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a stretch, but it worked. And that was due to panting. There has been many, 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 many times when I've been writing, like, again, I know, say, in the grand alphabet of the arc of the story, I know A, G, M, R, S, T, U, and Z, right? I know that. That's my outline. But as for B, C, D, E, J, I, K, although I don't know, you know what I mean? And bridging those bits where I have been the most fun sometimes to write and the most creative as well. So I think, you know, a lot of people, um, I mean, there's zillions of authors out there, but there are many more authors out there that don't write because they don't want to take the risk because for one reason or another, they haven't got the time or the can't bother. But I mean, there's some superb writers that could do it if they wanted to. If, if you're one of those people and you sit down and just trust yourself, mm-hmm. you'll be surprised I would say nine times out of ten, you're right. You'll be surprised. It might need a little bit of tweaking sometimes, but actually you'll be surprised with what you come out with. Very true. Very true. Mm. Um, I I wanted to just touch a little bit on your your process um, a little further, only because – I shouldn't say only, but you've been been at this less than a year, and I find this really interesting – is you've obviously cranked out quite a few books, six books, one in the works – you know, a few box sets. So talk a little bit about just your process. How have you been able to be so prolific and productive? Um, kind of what does your, your day look like? I mean, how, how are you, um, you know, obviously you don't have the day job anymore, but, but how are you, uh, kind of, you know, working that out? Do you have projects planned out in advance? Kind of what do you do once you have a rough draft? Kind of those kind of, uh, questions. I, well, first of all, um, I, <laughs> I don't recommend, what I did in, in checking in your career and risking everything to make a go at this. But, but nevertheless, it's still a risk. And I think 
I think that risk is is whether I realise it or not. I guess I am realising it. I think that risk, knowing that you've done that, and there's a lot riding on this, just gives you that one and a half percent more than if you had kind of done it part time. And there, we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But then that informs my process, and my process is usually this: I'm not someone that writes every day. Um, I write project by project. So, so a typical thing would be, um, and I write very quickly as well. My first draft for book four, five, and six was five days. We're talking 60, 75, or in the dealer's case, 85,000 words. So, um, and, and I, I know that sounds stupid and it is, um, I mean, there's a price to pay for that in editing and editing and proofreading and so on. But I'm quite an impatient person. So when um, – because I'm doing it full-time, I write project to project. So, for example, I'll start Monday morning and I will go, right, I want X amount of words done. So, uh, you know, I'll write, say, three chapters, 10,000 words, for example, um, and I'll get to that and then I'll stop and then that'll be the day of writing over with. But I know I need I'm not going to rest until this first draft is done. If the weather's kind of cool and my wife is out a bit longer than normal, I can get more written uh, on paper, if you like, or, or written in Scrivener. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I will again, I will not rest until that first draft is done. Uh, it's what I call a birthing process. If you go to my uh, <laughs> if you go to my website, chromevalleybooks.com, you'll see um, a long making of documentary on how I wrote book four. And the birthing process is basically getting that idea out of your head, through your arm, through your finger, onto the keyboard and onto the screen. Once it's there, you can do what you like. You can change stuff. You can put it through Grammarly or, you know, you can take out entire chapters or rewrite stuff. It's just simply getting the baby out of my womb, if you like. And um, so that's why I write so fast, because I can't do anything else. Like, for example, right now I'm writing something called Verses, mm-hmm. which I'll, I'll tell you about in a minute. But um, but it, it's different to In Their Shoes, and I'm writing it backwards. Nevertheless, it's a 60, 65, 70-ish. don't know yet, because I'm only halfway through, but it's going to be in that area. Right now, my fingers are itching because I'm not writing that story. <laughs> See what I mean? So, so as I am not going to function as as a husband to my wife <laughs> until I finish writing that first draft. Now, when I finish that writing that first draft and it's done and it's next week, um, I won't write uh, a- another book until that one's finished. So it could be a week or two or maybe three weeks until I start writing the next book. And in that time, I'll talk to my PA, Joe Huber, who's awesome, about uh, gathering our ARC readers to prepare themselves while it's in editing to read it and give, uh, you know, tell me what they think and, and that kind of thing. So so I write intensely. What would normally, let's say, for example, book six, The Dealer, 85,000 words. I would imagine... It's a total guess, but from all the authors I know, I would imagine that would take an author probably a month, a month and a half to write first draft. Something like that. Five, six weeks. If it's 85,000 words, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are other people out there that could do it quicker. There are other people out there that might take six months. I don't know. But I would say on average, we're talking about a month, a month and a half, maybe two months. Me, five days. (laughs) Blast that out. Blast it out. 
completely blast it out, knacking myself and get jet lagged in doing it and seriously put my health at risk, if I'm honest. But at least it's done. And then goes to my editors, comes back, we to and fro. But then I'm not writing for another three weeks. So so I'm kind of making up for it while I'm writing in those five days, if that makes sense. It could be it could be to the detriment of the quality of the material. So far, the reviews and feedback I've got suggest that that isn't the case. But it could be the case. And, um, you know, uh, so anyway, that's that's my process. I write intensely from anywhere between five to ten days. Then I have a couple of weeks of not writing. And, of course, while you're waiting for the edit notes to come back, your brain's still working on the story, you know. So, and you know, like with the dealer, I sent, uh, I sent it to Ashley and Drew. I've got two editors. Uh, Drew doesn't know anything and Ashley knows everything. So I get two different sets of notes and they don't know each other. But for the week it took them to go through and edit, I came up with other ideas, fell out of love with certain bits that I didn't like. And I thought, but before they've even told me what they think, I was like, right, rubbing my hands. I know what I, I need to do now. I've had time to let it fester in my head. Um, and it's better because of it. And then there will be a, a week of marketing and pre-ordering and that kind of thing. I've made a, a habit of launching um, uh, on Facebook and doing live reads on Facebook Live just to get more people sort of looking at it and stuff. So that, and then you know, just it's like uh, Johnny Truant and Sean Platt say, isn't it? Right, publish, repeat, and and that's my version of that, if you like. Okay. So I'm able to I'm able to produce a book once a month or month and a half doing that mm-hmm. no that's great I, I i find your your process fascinating i think it, you probably have one of the most unique that i've heard but i i think there's some uh thread of truth it's this idea of you know right 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 and then kind of rest you know and kind of refuel and and get some of that creativity back i, I find when i'm done with the book i'm kind of burned out a little bit um, yep. and it's like, you need that, you know, week, but you know, everyone said, well, if you, you got to write, you know, another word, you got to write another, another day. And, you know, I think every day we write, I mean, if it's an email, if it's a blog, if it's whatever, but, but there's something about just like burning it at both ends and then just resting, <laughs> reju- recuperating and then writing again. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things as a teacher uh, was that you needed to do this by this time. This has to be marked by that time. And, of course, I walked away from that, and I walked away from all the shackles of that as well. There, there have been – I mean, I know some authors that do very well, and they write three or 4,000 word, uh, words a, a day without question. Mm-hmm. However – and that's fine. Uh, me, there are some days where I know if I hit the keyboard, I'm going to write rubbish. And it's going to be a waste of time, so I'd rather not do it. So if I can put myself in a frame of mind where, right, you know, are you sure you want to start writing this book now? Are you sure? Because you know what you're like when you start writing that <laughs> those first few words. Mm-hmm. Are you sure about this, Andrew? Andrew? Oh, he's already started writing. So <laughs> and then it's like, right, we're off and running. That's it. Um, and then, yeah, but I, – I, I don't want to say burn out, but you do get tired doing it. You do get fatigued. But I think there's something to be said, I think, for uh, the intensity of, of, of writing that. Because, you know, if you wake up 
I don't know, 10 o'clock at night after sleeping all day because you were up all night writing chapter six, seven, and eight, um, that the intensity is still there. You've gone to bed, you've had something to eat, you've had a shower, you've woken up, and you're writing again. So it's like, you know, you, you're kind of binge watching season four of Breaking Bad almost. It's that equivalency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, right, I want to know what happens next. Bang on the computer, you go on the laptop and you start typing again. And then before you know it, you've got a book. Um, and then, but it's very important that if you choose to do it this way, that you walk away from it for at least a week, at least a week. Because um, I never, I never look at the manuscript after the first draft. I'll go through it and just have a quick skim read of it, just make sure that everything's there. Send it off to my editors, and then a day goes by. I just blank it from my head. Second day comes around. Oh, you know that bit in chapter two? Oh, I don't know. Like, oh, I have to change that guy's name. That doesn't work. Oh, I thought of something better for chapter seven. You know what I mean? So, and then you're just itching itching to get back and and attend to those notes. Mm -hmm. Um, And also to that end, finally, I would say on this point is that if you're going to do it this way, you need to be really thick skinned Mm -hmm. because, you know, your editor, too often I think people forget that your editor is on your side. And as long as their main remit is to make what you wrote better, then let them do it. <laughs> That's great advice, great advice. So tell us, um, as we kind of get to the end here, tell us uh, a little bit about your new project. And You wanted to say a couple things about that, and then, yeah, whatever else you're working on and where people can find you. Uh, yeah, well, um, I after book six of In Their Shoes, uh, I've taken a break. When you when you've read the series, you understand why there was a break there. Um, I uh, keeping with satire. What I found was when I was in book four, the artist, and book six, the dealer, was I was sort of bending a little bit into crime. Well, not a little bit, a lot into crime uh, and thriller, uh, but still making it funny. And that's a good thing about satire being the, the stem of the tree. You can branch out into different, you know, like farce and, you know, uh, all, all sorts of different things, nonfiction for the teacher and things like that. Um, so, um, rewind a little bit, uh, about 10 minutes ago, I told you that a line came into my head and, and here it is. And I think it may well end up being ad copy verbatim. And it was simply this, a high school teenager decides to shoot up his school on the same day a radicalized Islamist decides to blow it up. Where that came from, I have no idea. But that's the project I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. It's called Verses. And it is a satire, um, probably third and foremost. It's a, more a crime thriller. And it mm-hmm. follows uh, a week in the life of... Uh, a guy called Daryl, who's 17 years old, and um, again, he's being broken down and being um, he's brainwashing himself into disliking and hating everyone. At the same time, you've got another guy called uh, Farouk, uh, Freddy, uh, who is being brainwashed in a different way. He's being radicalized uh, by his cousins, and they both pick the same day to commit their atrocity, but they don't know that the other person is doing it. Um, so, so that's really the kind of groundwork of the, and I thought, you know, and I, I, there was a lot of research on this one. I talked to a lot of people and I think it was interesting because I was in South Korea a month and a half ago and I came up with the idea just before that. So I was you know, playing it out in my head and, and what do you know, it, it, things like Manchester arena happened over here. Mm-hmm. 
um, the Westminster Bridge attack, the London Bridge attack. More rec- recently, the uh, the building went up in flames last week in Grenfell, uh, which is right down the road from where I used to live um, and where I used to teach. I know a couple of students that got caught up in that. Um, so there's so really, this is a satire about terrorism. Um, but not just the obvious. It's also about the terrorism of um, children's thoughts, the way they've grown up. Uh, the media has its own chapter and their response to developing news. Um, and then finally you have the atrocity itself, which is really re- – it's going to be a very difficult read. Um, so at one point it's very kind of – at one point it's kind of grim and the next point it's kind of you know very dramatic and melodramatic and it switches between humor and and vicious satire so that's what i'm writing now and i'm writing this one backwards so i had to write the atrocity itself first and then build up to it and that's where i'm at now i'm actually halfway back through the story so um so if again if if i've done it wrong it'll read as trash if i've done it right who knows what? But um, yeah, it's uh, if if I had read ad copy saying that a school shooter and a, and a and a bomber had decided to enact their atrocity in the same place at the same time, I think I might be compelled to read that. So that's that. It, it shot straight to the front of my brain. Um, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, I think I think you'll. It's like you said earlier about you know comedy satire being able to say hard things or be able to kind of deal with hard issues. I think with what's going on in the world, I think you know it could be a, a very beautiful. You know, I think that's the cool thing about art. You know, art is is something that can uh, bring stuff out of us that just you know conversation can't. You know, or the news. It was or, yeah, you're right. You know, you're absolutely right. A lot of it is dictated by the news. I mean, for, for, I mean, the, one of the questions I asked myself at the beginning is, you know, there are so many uh, uh, school shootings in, in the States, you know, they're, they're quite frequent. Why hasn't the UK had one uh-huh. yet? Um, and because guns are freely, well, not freely, but I mean, they're, they're easy to get hold of if you, if you want to get hold of them, but yet that's never happened. Uh-huh. And, and it's exactly that question I planted into the brain of, of Daryl. You know, here's an opportunity to go out, quote unquote, you know, famous and, you know, the media are going to do it mm-hmm. and why and you will be the first. And that that's really his motive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the uh, the tricky thing here with satire is not make is not making that explicit. It needs to grow out of the character. So, you know, there, there can't be a conversation with, a, oh, what are you doing on Friday? Oh, I think I'm just going to get some guns and blow up the school. <laughs> it's not going to – you can't do it like that. It needs to be a slow burn, and, it, right. and, and the character doesn't talk that much. It's all through action, which is very screenplay filmy, uh, actually, mm-hmm. as it happens. Sounds great. Sounds great. So, yeah. So tell, tell everyone that's listening um, where people can find you. Um, what's the best place to find you and your books? uh probably um a couple of places uh, you can well you can find me on facebook andrew mckay m-a-c-k-a-y uh if you friend me i'll friend you back no that's twitter uh twitter is at andrew underscore cvb um go to my website which is chromevalleybooks.com the home of dangerous fiction uh and uh if you type my name into uh amazon uh you will probably find my author page and all my stuff there well, hey, Andrew, this has been uh, an absolute privilege and um, a lot of great 
uh, conversation and you're going to help a lot of people. And so really, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ryan. That's great. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, we'll keep in touch and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Well, everybody, that was episode number 29, Andrew Mackay. What a great interview. Uh, what a great guy. Um, so glad to have him on the show. And I was really fascinated by his process of kind of these bursts of inspiration and, and not stressing out about writing every day. And I think a lot of advice you hear about writing is you got to write every day. And, and there's, that's not bad advice. Some write every day. But I think there's something about giving space, letting kind of your creativity kind of reinvigorate and get rejuiced a little bit. And so I love the way that he just kind of takes a break and then just cranks it out. And, uh, and, and he writes some great stories. So I think you can learn a lot from that, maybe changing up your process. And I think in the end, you're probably going to write just as many words. I don't think it's, it's less production. I think it's just more time in the chair and, and cranking out those good words. So thank you, Andrew Mackay. Go check out his books, um, Andrew Mackay, um, dot com and, uh, and check Google his name for Amazon. You'll find it. Um, go check out his books. He's got some new books coming out, uh, that just came out. So, uh, thank you for coming on the show and listening to the show. And if you could do me a solid and leave a review wherever you listen to the show, that would really help us out a lot. I know I asked every week, but reviews really do help. And thank you for everyone that has been listening and we'll keep, uh, getting those interviews going and, uh, have some great people coming in. So looking forward to that. Um, so stay tuned prolificwriter.net. And uh, check out all the stuff there. Talk to you real soon.